Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning to open your word, to examine what you have to say to us so that we can more clearly understand uh, your will for our life and that we might walk in a manner worthy of our, our, our calling. Father, we thank you for this uh, time and pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Of course, that's Tolkien from The Fellowship of the Ring. And C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia had this to say, Peter did not feel very brave indeed. He, was, he felt he was going to be sick. But that made no difference to what he had to do. And then Lewis from God in the Dock. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want to make a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly wouldn't recommend Christianity. And then he goes on in Mere Christianity. It says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. I think I said that right. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, is not an idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that obey that command. He will make the filthiest and feeblest of us into gods or goddesses. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine. Yet a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. Though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in heart in parts very painful painful, but that is what we're in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. And he goes on in another place in mere Christianity. Christ says, Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural self, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only cut a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me Yourself in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. In another place in Mere Christianity, Lewis says this, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has already begun to save you, not hoping 
to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. So that's just a few things that I think in literature, popular literature, that reflect a Christian worldview like we have taught uh, in the past about. And certainly if we are following the uh, instructions that we find in Proverbs, it's it's something that will convert our lives and sanctify us and make us see things in the same way that Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis and others have seen uh, and the way that they reflect uh, those values and that way of living in what they write. Um, Most of what we're um, covering here uh, over the last few weeks and for the next couple of weeks comes from a book called Practicing Proverbs by Richard Mayhew. And I've pulled a lot of information today also from another book uh, called God's Wisdom in Proverbs by Dan Phillips. And I want to take a moment and review uh, a few things, uh, something that I covered about a month ago and then some things that Grant covered a few weeks ago uh, to set us up and to remind us of things that I think are vitally important for us to keep in mind as we look at Proverbs. And I want to start out here by reading Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 33. So if you'd like to turn there and follow with me, we'll start in verse 20. And this is a call of wisdom, or the call of wisdom. And it says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the market she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one is heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and at ease without dread of disaster." What great instruction to us. The writer of Proverbs put wisdom in a street language using uh, the figure of a woman crying out in the city. So she, as wisdom, beckons the people to turn from their sinful scoffing of God to reprove and its attendant reward. Jesus parallels the same idea with his parable of the two builders where he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So your spiritual transformation began when you received Christ as your Savior and Lord. And Paul describes him as the one 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's in Jesus Christ. God's gift, his spirit, came to indwell believers with what Isaiah calls the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Paul goes on to remind everyone that the one to whom glory will be given forever is the only wise God in Romans 16:27, referring to God the Father. Therefore, your relationship to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit refers to a union of pure wisdom, with pure wisdom. Thus, your transformation comes by the personal presence and power of divine wisdom in your life. Only by the gracious divine transformation of sinners can anyone hope to practice the wisdom that we find in Proverbs. Perhaps one of the best known yet most understood trust passages about trusting in God in all of the Bible is in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may recall that Grant reviewed this passage and its meaning and it is so vitally important, I think, to us understanding the rest of Proverbs and being able to apply that to our life that I want to examine it again for a few minutes uh, and see how that fits into the whole of what Proverbs is trying to teach us. So let's start by reading the larger section that that's found in, in chapter 3. So let's start with verse 1. If you want to turn to me, with me and read with me, we'll start there. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to the, your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now you see this passage forms a unit with a distinctive pattern. Look how the verses alternate in from one sense to another. First an exhortation and then a consequence or a result of following that exhortation or not following it. For example, in verse 1, it, it asks the son to memorize his father's teaching. Verse 2 then promises life and peace. Verse 3 urges the son not to be let steadfast love and truth forsake him. And then verse 4 promises that this is the key to favor with God and man. So you see that pattern throughout this whole section. And really through all of Proverbs, you see that type of a pattern. So let's keep that in mind as we look at verses 3 through 5. There is a conditionality present there to receiving God's blessing or wisdom. We will see that it is not just your empty head. Sit on the side of the road and see how God is going to direct our life that those verses are talking about. So let's, well actually let's start with verse 5. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. So the common evangelical church view that we're going to run into most of the time, and I'm sure that you've heard this from maybe some of your own friends or even been taught this in the past, Uh, is that these words, they're very familiar and very well-loved by many, and so many people don't 
think them through as to what they're actually saying or what the Bible is actually, how it's using that in context. As a result, this verse is, this verse is often more misused than use, used as intended by Solomon or by the God who inspired him to write these words. Many assume that the meaning of the verse runs like this, to trust in Yahweh with all your heart is to have the very deepest feelings of confidence in God, to feel sure that he will take care of me, to feel good about God and his fatherly fatherly care. Well, there's nothing wrong with those types of feelings, but is that what this is teaching? They think, the way this is often taught or framed, To not lean on your own understanding is to self-righteously or passively refuse to think or analyze with your own mind, but simply to wait in silence on God without any understanding, to trust that he will bypass my mind and send me the leadings and feelings that I will need in order to handle any situation. Don't you hear that from some of your friends or people that uh, maybe have taught that in the past? Maybe not directly, but certainly uh, indirectly, that's their thinking. Or that he will simply, God will simply control the situation without my needing to engage mentally or volitionally in any way. But what is the more biblical view? What is Solomon actually intending to teach us in those verses or in that particular verse? First, let's see how these two verbs that he uses, and I know that that Grant went over this uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Let's see how they're put together. First, we've got trust in line, the first line, and then the parallel lean in line B. Therefore, the idea of trust is made more specific in the image of seeking and finding support. Do you see that? Trusting is further explained by finding support. So these are two different ways of thinking, two sides of the same idea or concept. The one side puts me on my own selfish, foolish thinking, and the other puts me in the way that God intends for me to see that and to trust in him. Yahweh is contrasted with your own discernment. Solomon has in mind a mental volitional process, not an emotional experience. Knowing God affects not only our feelings, but our entire mental framework and consequently our worldview that we've talked about so much in the past. This is highlighted when we think about the additional phrase in line A, with all your heart. Remember, in the Bible, the heart's not the seat of your emotions, okay? Instead, the heart's the center of our thinking, where we treasure things, where we contemplate things, and where we decide things. It's the mind that the Bible's talking about. Thus, our entire thinking, our entire thinking is to bear the imprint of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So in the total context of Proverbs, do you think Proverbs teach anywhere? anywhere in that book that you're familiar with, that we should wait somehow mystically upon God with our minds not engaged? Or does Proverbs rather teach that we must learn, understand, memorize, and volitionally put into practice the words of God? What could God have been thinking when he moved Solomon to write the book if his purpose was to make his children passive reactive, and acting like a bunch of mystics. Why load a book up with practical warnings and calls to thought and action only then to turn and expect his children to be passive airheads waiting for something to miraculously happen? Hmm? To the point, remember Proverbs chapter 1 that we already read, verses 2 through 6, there Solomon says in so many words that the whole point of the book is to serve as an education for skill in godly living. And then he would provide us those things to learn and to ponder. He absolutely, Solomon, and hence God, speaking through him, he absolutely intended 
intensive mental activity as a result and as a natural component of fearing God. We gain God's perspective, embrace it, absorb it, and then act on it. I can hear some Christians saying, don't tell me I have something to do. That's being legalistic. But Solomon's assumption is that we do not natively, just in ourselves, possess that understanding that we need. We are neither born with it, nor does it simply come to us somehow mystically as we watch and wait passively. If we had the knowledge acquired all these truths either naturally or, in, or directly, supernaturally, or mystically absorb them, we, if we had all of that, we wouldn't need the book of Proverbs. But as we've discussed, heart always refers to the center of our thinking, treasuring, deciding, doing something. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 2, the son is urged to incline his heart to understanding. It is something he must do, and it is specifically an intellectual undertaking. Proverbs 4.23 says this, watch, your heart, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So again, here we see that the way we live flows from our hearts because our hearts are the seat of our convictions and values. We must guard that foundation which calls for an intense spiritual and intellectual action. A planning heart is an intellectually active heart. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, we see this admonition. My son, Observe the commandments of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. This is figurative language calling for the intellectual activity of memorization, isn't it? Further, the activity is, urges us to learn, memorize, and obey those commands. As a result of this disciplined mental activity, wisdom rests in the heart of of a man of understanding, as it says in chapter 14, verse 33. Thus, wisdom and not a vacuum fills the heart of a person whom God praises. This wise man must use his mind to plan his way. In chapter 16, verses 1 and 3, we read, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And it goes on and says, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And then in chapter 19, verse 21, Many plans are, are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. So do you see that? God intends that we use our heart, that is our mind, to make plans. There's no accommodation anywhere in these verses for the person who avoids analytical thought in the name of trusting Yahweh with all of his heart. God means us to use our minds to focus on, acquire, understand, and retain his wisdom. And then there's a flip side to all of that about, you, about a misuse of the heart. If Solomon is not warning against our own intellectual activity, then what is the cautioning us against what is he cautioning us against doing? We are to invest all of our intellectual, volitional and treasuring powers, you know, memorization, um, in all of our meditation about God's word, in trusting God's and uh, in, in trusting Yahweh. And we don't lean on our own understanding to come to those kinds of conclusions. We may understand Solomon better by means of a brief look here at Proverbs 28, verses 26, uh, where it says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So the contrast here is very instructive. The opposite of trusting one's own heart is not having an empty heart that vacantly trusts God in a passive 
intellectually comatose way. Rather, the opposite of trusting in one's own heart is walking in the light of God's revealed wisdom. One cannot walk in wisdom without knowing wisdom, without the intellectual activities of learning, analyzing, memorizing, and applying that. Therefore, trusting in one's own heart will have to mean the opposite of walking in God's revealed wisdom. Do you see that? So given all of this, what was Solomon trying to say in Proverbs 5 and those verses surrounding that when both that immediate context and the larger context are plugged in? Well, we have two choices. Number one, the, the common view that everybody seems to hold is that Solomon's saying, don't try to understand, don't use your mind at all, just feel trustful of God, lean blindly on Him, accept the things as they come, and let him worry about everything else. But the biblical view, as we say, Solomon is saying, do not lean on mere human understanding, but trust God enough to study and learn and depend on his revealed understanding, which I am teaching you in this book. You see that? So, I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. This is what we need to do. It requires activity on our part. Uh, The book that we're using, Practicing Proverbs, by Richard Mayhew, uh, to look at this, he takes all of the verses in Proverbs and he he, uh, puts them in different categories. So he goes through every chapter in Proverbs and pulls out all of the um, uh, verses that apply to different things. And, you know, we've look, we'll look at, we're not going to cover all of these things here today, but we, he looks at things like um, age and the wisdom uh, and the thinking that comes with age. Uh, he looks at authority and obedience, at children, at marriage, at a lot of different aspects of our life, and it's all arranged categorically. And I'm going to pass out in a little while uh, some of those verses that show how that's look, um, how he categorizes that, and we can go through a few of those um, in our time here this morning. But first, I want to talk about one area that he um, has categorized uh, the verses that apply to children. Um, and I want to talk about that, how children fit into our lives as if we need some instruction, but actually we do. Too many professing Christians stumble into marriage uh, the same way they bumble uh, in into children. They just kind of go into marriage thinking that everything's going to work out, and then uh, they don't have a real plan to all of that. And then when it, children come along... Um, they take no, no more deliberate uh, steps in thinking about how to raise those children than they did about uh, their marriage. Um, but there's actually a lot of instruction in Proverbs, as we may know already, about rearing children. Um, a lot of times people expect that some previously dormant part of their brain will automatically kick in and the arrival of some little ones giving new parents instant and intuitive knowledge of what to do. And I'll tell you from personal experience, five children of our own, this doesn't happen. So at least it must still be dormant in my brain anyway. (laughs) One would think the children of Christians should be markedly different than the children of unbelievers, but often that isn't the case. And why is that? It's perhaps because God, is is it because God neglected to give us specific counsel as to child training in his word? Well, probably not. The Bible is full of wisdom and counsel for parents in one form or another. The fact that the upbringing of believers' children is often not any different from or even sometimes inferior to those of unbelievers is not traceable to a lack found in the Bible. Perhaps all too often... It's a testimony to our own stubborn, arrogant refusal to seek counsel and accept correction as to raising children from God's Word. So how would you describe children? Everybody's got little bundles of joy? 
or big packages of problems? Maybe both sometimes, huh? Well, consider what Psalm 127 has to say. Verses 1 through 3. (laughs) Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So the Bible has a very positive description as children, as a heritage from the Lord and a reward. And he also describes him in that passage as like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So God's giving us a perspective that may not come naturally to us, huh? Arrows in the hand of a warrior. This psalm is written by Solomon, so it gives us good insight into how the author of Proverbs viewed children. The Spirit of God moves Solomon to employ the image of an arrow. So ask yourself, what does one do with an arrow? Do you just polish it and shine it and treat its feathers and admire it and put it on the wall? Or does one aim at keeping it in one's quiver forever, just happy to know that it's there? Or does one set it on the ground and say, go, arrow, go hit that target over there. Hit that target. That's the way. Good job. Really, we know what they are for. They are for hitting a target. Whether that target is a bullseye in a tournament, or whether we're out looking for tonight's dinner, or we're wanting to stop the bad guys, as they so often did in the past, coming over the wall and down the street. One wants to be an arrow to be straight, and one wants it to be sharp. One's prime concern is not to make something that makes him feel good or makes him proud, but something that accomplishes its purpose. Basically, one wants an arrow that hits and penetrates the target and accomplishes what it was set out to do, okay, and what it was created for. So here's the question. What is the target for your arrows? What's the goal of your family for your children? What would success look like for those arrows? Or conversely, what would failure look like? How do you measure either one, and what's the standard by which you measure that? So what are the goals for your children? Here are some answers that uh, were suggested by Phillips, um, that my child will earn a high school diploma, that my child will go to college, that my child will learn a trade, that my child will stay out of trouble, that my child will not get pregnant or cause a pregnancy, become addicted, join a gang, get killed, or contract some terrible disease, that my child will be a good citizen, that my child will marry happily, and then for those of us that are really spiritual, that my child will become a Christian. Each of these goals will give a different slant and group of emphasis to a process of child training, obviously. Go back and think of the differing impact of training that would have caused each of these suggested goals. And when we do this, we're in a position to realize that none of these goals goes far enough. Many of them listed are not even distinctly Christian or biblical. It is not that they're bad goals. No item um, that we talked about um, is exclusive to one group or the other. It can be shared by unbelieving friends who aim at everything from academic excellence to professional excellence to marriage ability, uh, politics, and so forth. If the fear of God is to be the foundation of all of our knowledge, that lack of clear distinction is a problem in most of those goals. Someone might respond, but what about the goal that the child should become a Christian, like the last goal that we talked about? That is a distinctively Christian goal. It's true enough in itself, but even that goal can leave the family in the same place uh, as many churches that believe, um, you know, have a very soft view, I think, of their salvation or a very uh, shallow view of their salvation. Many pulpits feature salvation messages 
over and over and over again where the pastors constantly tell folks how to become Christians and then nothing. Thus, the whole process aims at this one point, one climax, conversion, or at least a profession of faith, and then presumably we're done, okay? There's nothing beyond that. And likewise, many Christians believe that their children become saved if, if they become saved at a very early age, um, before they're even teenagers, uh, because they've repeated a prayer, uh, that they're done, that they've reached their goal. Thus, we're left in a, with a gap there of a decade or more with no big objective in mind for those kids other than the secular ones that we, were, we talked about also. But what does Scripture say about all of this? First, God's, let's look at what God's design was for the family. And you have to turn to Genesis 1 for that. Verses 26 and 28, and I'll read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's that telling us? God creates man with a particular, particular ca- uh, task in mind. First, Adam, the leader, is created to rule and subdue the earth. Then Eve is created to help Adam rule and subdue the earth. The family grows uh, out of this union and is a vital part of that original goal for man to rule and subdue the earth. Therefore, it follows the family is created subdue the earth for God, at least in part, even though that is not a comprehensive goal for the family and for each one of us, as we know. The parent's role, then, is to train the child for this calling. Children must be brought up with that vision in mind and taught the convictions and skills necessary to pursue it. And what does this training for the service of God in exercising dominion entail? To be sure, establishing a relationship with God is primary. You can't do anything without having done that first. This means evangelism of our children. In the family, the father and the mother, not the church, should be the primary place of that evangelism that's going on in that family. As parents, we should endeavor to point our children to Christ as if no one else will ever tell them about the gospel. Still, we must remember that there's more to evangelism than just telling them the four spiritual laws or some other plan of salvation. The teaching of theology is primary, even in evangelism, and more than just making a short presentation and hoping that they pray to receive Christ as their Savior. This comprehensive training entails learning to serve God, which in itself involves a number of areas of education. From the earliest days, our children, our kids, must be taught, and our grandchildren too, and I think that's a goal for Patrice and I, must be taught about the whole Bible, which leads them to salvation through faith, and they must learn how to read and study the Bible. They must actually study the Bible. They must be shown the need for repentant faith and a life which adorns that faith. They must learn to practice what they learn from Scripture. They must, you hear that? They must learn to practice what they learn from Scripture. They must see and participate in the service of God in a local church and must see the process of learning that their own spiritual gifts um, are there to service in a way to service that church. This is what is involved today in the call to subdue the world for God, at least one aspect of it, and that's a primary aspect, as we've seen. Let's pass out this handout that I have for everyone. I've got 40 um, of these packets, so it may be that we need couples to uh, take a packet rather than every individual person. I don't think I've got enough for everyone here. But take that, and it shows, I've got the first seven pages of uh, verses from Proverbs that are uh, arranged categorically. And I think 
Grant should have been teaching this lesson because the first category is about the gray-headed one. <laughs> gray head is a crown of glory. I just I can't see myself fitting in that. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> All right. So some really good verses in here to look at. The first two pages. I think I've got it front and back on the handout there. Let's let's read a couple of these, and then I want to turn over to the part about children here and look at that on page three, I think it is. Look, uh, let's, on the first page, let's skip down to verse, uh, to chapter 4, verse 1. You see that? You, you see this pattern that we were talking about earlier? There's an exhortation and then a consequence. And that verse says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Verse 6, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. There's a promise in verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words and the years of your life may be many. And then on the next page, page two, keep, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. And then verse 24, to preserve you from the evil woman and the smooth tongue of an adulteress. So an exhortation and a result or a consequence um, that follows in some of the other verses uh, that he didn't record there. But And then he says in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Any questions about any of those observations anybody has? Made those copies for you. I think it's great to take those and consider them categorically. Uh, rather than just the flow. I mean, it's good to read it both ways. Let's take a look at um, children, page 3. So we've already read here, but let's read one more time. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The version you may be reading may be a little bit different, but I think it's a great uh, rendition of that. Take a look over at, I think it is... Yes, uh, page 5, you see there from the top, train up a child in the way he will go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think that's one of those verses that's often misinterpreted. And I think maybe Grant has covered that a little bit in the past also, but I want to go over it one more time because I think it is so, I, I think the consequence of misunderstanding what that's saying leads us to make some mistakes in the way we do things. 
Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And Dan Phillips took that verse and looked at the actual uh, Hebrew that was written in and um, put the words more literally in it. This is what it says. Start out a youth according to his own way. Even should he grow old, he will not turn from it. Okay? So you see it's the same, saying the same thing, but the emphasis is a little bit different. The, the verse is commonly clung to as a promise. In other words, um, it, you know, if you do this, this is what will happen with your son or daughter. The verse is commonly clung to as a promise. However, it's not a promise. It's not a promise. On the contrary, it's a consequence, Proverbs. B, line B, is what happens when you do A. It's a threat, a warning, and it's framed in terms of an irony here. Throughout the book, Solomon has warned many, many times where our natural tendency would take every one of us. He has told us that his foolishness and that the natural child is caught up in that in the fabric of his own heart. That's his nature. Left to himself, a child will shame his mother because left to himself, he will have only his own heart to trust in. And that inevitably leads away from wisdom and towards even more folly. It leads him open to the wrong crowd and the wrong influences. The influences of his peers and even more and more folly as that just snowballs. So um, Solomon has repeatedly told us that there are only two ways. The way that seems right to us is the path that leads towards destruction and death. But the way, and that's the way the fool has chosen. It is the way your child will choose left to himself. And he will be doomed to eat the deadly fruit of that way. He'll suffer the consequence of that. But what is this way that seems right of which he is the center? All of the ways such a corrupt heart, when it chooses its own way and when it seems right to him. What is that way? Well, Solomon warns us if a parent runs a child-centered home. Don't we see that today in our secular culture particularly and even in Christians' home? We let the the child call the shots and shapes everything in that home to the child's whims. If we mold the world of the family to suit the child and um, never cross the child's will, and we even see consequences or examples of that throughout the Old Testament where the father didn't reprimand his son, so he's setting out on a foolish path, straying, and that rebellious heart will be set in cement, right? He is confirming the inborn corruption of the child's nature. He is shielding his child from the law, from what is right, resulting in a child feeling no need of the gospel or the Savior that it reveals. The child will walk that selfish, doomed way as a child. He starts out on the way and grows accustomed to it, okay, on the foolish path. So even when he grows old, he won't depart from that path. Maturity, you know, in terms of age of the child or how many years old that person is, doesn't deliver you from that path. So even when you're old, your heart is even more set to follow that way, and it's hardened itself. There's no natural progression from the heart's own foolish way to God's way. Now, certainly we know God does supernatural things in calling us. Some people he calls late in life, but the natural progression of letting a child go his own way is that he'll never turn from that. He'll never examine God on his own, okay? So the parents have failed in their duty to point a child to God 
by letting the child rule the home. So that's what that verse is about. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. So I think it's helpful to understand that. And as we look at these verses that we have here on children, uh, we see that, I think, over and over again about the necessity of training a child and correcting the child away from his or her natural tendencies. And then the last section I put in here uh, on correction and reproof. I think it's amazing sometimes how shockingly honest the Scripture is. You know, I've, I've seen pastors criticized because they, they, they're preaching the gospel in, in a very unvarnished way and not trying to dress it up and make people feel good about what Scripture says. But look down in the middle of that first page of page 6 there. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who re- hates reproof is stupid. I mean, it's calling the person out for what he really is. If he's not willing to um, accept discipline, you're being stupid. So I think it's, it's instructive that God is looking at us in a very unvarnished way. He doesn't look at us with rose-colored glasses. He sees us for what we are, and he tells us what we are. So over and over again, I think there's plenty of instruction here for us um, in our walk, and I hope that this has been helpful this morning. And I hope you take those verses and look at them. There's a lot more that we could um, go through. I would encourage you to get both of those books and um, study them on your own. And I think that will assist us all in walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We ask that you use this time to to train our minds that we might uh, be diligent through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to study the Scripture, to let that uh, Scripture uh, sink into our very being, to let it change the way our mind thinks, that it totally transforms us as a person. We pray that that transformation might be a testimony to those around us, that our walk might be honoring to you, Lord, that we might walk uh, in a way that is truly uh, holding you up as our Lord and our Savior, and and Christ is our Savior. We thank you for what you've done, your graciousness towards us. We thank you for your instruction to us that you've given us through this scripture. We thank you that we are so to, to remain engaged, to study this, to memorize it, to um, consider uh, all of these things and how uh, that translates out into action on a day-to-day basis. Father, we pray uh, that you... Um, continually remind us of this, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.